We're looking today at Satan's defeat and loss of power in our text, Hebrews chapter 2. The first thing you'll note in your bulletin outline is Jesus' triumph over Satan. In the Colossian text that we've been looking at in the last few weeks, we read, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2 verse 15. If you look at verse 14 of our text today, Hebrews 2, it reads, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Now, triumph over and destroy him are parallel thoughts, if not identical expressions. God is telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus, through his cross work, not only took the wind out of Satan's sails, that is, he disarmed him, the Colossians 2 text, but he took the breath out of Satan's lungs, that is, he destroyed him, so that he's not powerful and has no control anymore. I mentioned last week that sometimes it looks like evil is winning out over righteousness. How can that be if Satan has been destroyed? How can that be if Satan has been disarmed? A disarmed prince has no weaponry with which to fight his battle. And an enemy destroyed is one that people no longer have to fear, which is the point of our Hebrews text. I mean, an enemy destroyed or disarmed becomes a toothless lion who cannot devour anyone, and yet Peter says that Satan roars about as a lion seeking people to devour. So what's going on here? Well, if you look at your bulletin outline, I'm going to introduce you to the principle in theology called the already but the not yet. You say, well, what on earth does that mean? Well, it's a way of explaining how something can be a done deal and yet not have all of the particulars in place. There's a very good example of this principle in Romans 8, verse 28 and following, which reads this way. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Now these few verses state five actions taken by God in bringing about salvation for his people. It all begins with foreknew. And it ends with glorification. Foreknew 
is the equivalent of for love. Because new, the word new, is being used as it is in the King James Bible language of intimate love. For example, we have in uh, Genesis 4 verse 1, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So for new, as it's used in that kind of context, means for loved or loved before time, hence in eternity past. So when we put all of the five actions in, we stack them up, it looks something like this. We are foreknown or foreloved, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. What's that? That's sanctification. Called, and it's an inward effectual call, not just hearing something with audible ears, but hearing with the heart and responding accordingly. Justified, next one up, that is declared righteous before God because of Christ. And last, glorified, that is, in glory with Jesus. Now, all of these uh, statements are in the past tense. All are portrayed by Paul as done deals. We say, now wait a minute. Doesn't a person have to be dead before being glorified. I mean, to be glorified is to be in glory with Jesus. Are you in glory with Jesus? Well, not literally. This is the principle of the already, but not yet. God so views his people as already being his, once forgiven, once justified, that the outcome of glorification is also reckoned a done deal, though it is not yet. Now hang in there, this isn't that hard to get. And it's all through scripture, I'm going to show that in a few moments. Now the reason God can promise this as a sure occurrence is because of who and what he is himself. Well, who and what is God in himself? Let me read it for you from his own words. I make known the end from the beginning. Isn't that our list here? The end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46, verse 10 and 11. Jesus affirmed the same thing with regard to his people in John 10, which he calls his sheep. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. Now notice the next phrase. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. 
Wait a minute. How can he call their life eternal with any kind of assurance? It goes on. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John 10, verse 27 and 28. And then in the next verse, he says this. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. There are no rivals, you understand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 29 and 30. This is the attribute of God that theologians call omnipotence or powerful. That is none more powerful. Jesus says, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? So I was talking about Powerful kings. If he's not able, Jesus goes on, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Luke 14, verse 31 and 32. Oh, that's with earthly kings, right? So he's giving that kind of illustration of kings. Here you got a king with 10,000 going up against a king with 20,000 soldiers. Can he... Can he win? Well, he determines whether he can or not. No such problem with God. Because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there are no potential rivals to stop him from whatever he determines to do. Now, that brings us then to the principle of the already but not yet as it's applied to Jesus' victory at the cross. And we need to understand this. The prophecy given in Psalm 110 says of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, here is the prophecy, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110, the first two verses. Now, always in Scripture, to be seated at the right hand of God is to be seated on the throne, on the power seat, on the prestige seat, on the seat from which pronouncements are made and plans are executed by fiat. That is, because the person seated says so. Very powerful position. We get a flavor of this, what it means to be at the right hand of God, if we were just to look at the Psalms. This expression is found throughout all of Scripture, but I can't give you all the Scriptures, but let me just take you through some of the Psalms. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You have made known to me the path of life, You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 16, verse 8 and verse 11. Or again, show the wonders of your great love. You save me by your right hand. Those who take refuge in you, you save from their foes. Psalm 17, verse 17. Or again, 
You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. Psalm 18, verse 35. Or again, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Psalm 20, verse 6. Or again, your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. Psalm 21, verse 8. Or again, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand. It was your arm and the light of your face, for you loved them. Psalm 44, verse 3. And then one more. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Psalm 45, verse 4. What do you, you, you see the theme in the use of that expression? The right hand. It's the place of honor. It's the place of safety because it's the protection of God himself. It's the place of victory over foes. It's the place of salvation. It's the position of superiority over one's enemies and a sure victory. The right hand, the right hand, the right hand, the right hand. All the way through. This is just Psalms. And in many other places where this expression is found in Scripture. But in all of these Scriptures and many more, This position of authority, power, rule, victory is attributed to God alone. No earthly potentate enjoys all of these attributes in and of himself. But God enthroned always reigns supreme no matter the circumstance on earth or in the heavens, the realm of the evil spirits. Well, in Psalm 110, we read God's prophecy concerning his son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Now I ask the question, when did this occur? When did this occur? Was Jesus ever seated at the right hand of God? How extensive is his role? In Matthew 22, 22, Jesus told the Pharisees that this prophecy in Psalm 110, David's prophecy, applied to none other than himself. So he's saying, you know, David said this long ago and he was talking about me. Okay, but we still ask the question, When did this happen? It happened at the ascension of the resurrected Lord. Let me read it for you. It's in Mark 16, verse 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, his disciples, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Taken up and he sat at the right hand of God. When we come to the book of Hebrews, we're in that book for our text today. The writer of Hebrews cannot say enough about Jesus' exalted position and rule. Let me read some of it. 
The Son of the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, that's Calvary, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. To which of the saints, or excuse me, to which of the angels did God say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? For your feet. Hebrews 1, verse 3, verse 13. Or again, the point of what we are saying, he writes, is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Or again, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, verse 12. Or again, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Chapter 12, verse 2. You see, he, he just repeatedly keeps talking about this. Now it's clear from all of these scriptures that upon completing his atoning work on the cross, Jesus was buried, he rose again, he ascended on high, and he took his rightful place by God the Father, the seat of authority and power and prestige and rule. He took that seat then and there. Now this is, follow me now, this is the already part of the principle that we are learning already but not yet. He's already seated. He's already done that. The not yet portion of truth here was hinted in David's prophecy in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, okay, here it comes, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until. This indicates that while Christ is seated in the position of authority and rule, of honor and power, everything is not yet completed. The battle rages on. Evil is still at work. Satan is an operative. Righteousness on planet earth has not yet been restored. But, and here's the point we must keep in mind, there is no doubt. As to the outcome. Already. Not yet. I was watching a, uh, a series on Netflix called The Nazi Hunters. I am intrigued by World War II and Hitler's regime. And how this evil man, this little pipsqueak of a colonel. Rose to such power and authority over not only Germany but much of Europe. As he began to expand his his reign. And it is with a documentary dealing with segments, dealing with those who made it their life's work, Nazi hunters, after the war, to hunt down those officials in the Nazi regime who were responsible for the genocide of the Jewish people, for Christians, yeah, I don't think just Jews were killed, and for political prisoners, political activists, in the death camps of Treblinka, 
Sobibor, and the worst of all, Auschwitz. If you're into history, you might like that series, The Nazi Hunters. Well, this documentary also depicts the last days of Hitler when the Russian troops were closing in on Berlin. The Allies, for all intent and purpose, had obtained victory over the Nazi regime. But Hitler and his close advisors were holed up in Berlin in a bunker, where the film depicts him greeting and encouraging new recruits to fight to the end. The recruits were boys, 11, 12 years old, whose rifles were bigger than they were, and old men who could hardly carry the weapons of warfare. What is this? Hitler had lost. The Allies had won. He knew it. All that remained was the mopping up procedure. But Hitler's pride would never permit him to admit it. And so in cowardly fashion, he ordered boys and old men to fight a losing battle, fight to the end, while he took his own life and ordered that his body be burned so that the Allies could not gloat over his defeat. In a far grander scale, let me say this is exactly what happened at the cross and the open tomb. Jesus became victorious and Satan was defeated. This is the already part of the principle that we are studying. When the disciples returned from preaching a preaching mission in which Christ had sent them, they returned, it says, with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Luke 10, verse 17, to which Jesus responded, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Luke 10, verse 18 and 19. Peter says of the resurrected Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 1 Peter 3, verse 22. Okay, okay. Why then, why then is there still evil in our world? I mean, how come we see a proliferation of sin and wickedness? Well, brethren, we are witnessing the not yet portion of the principle. Satan is already overthrown. But like Hitler, whom he inspired... He is not willing to admit defeat. He fights on. His sure doom looms on the horizon. The mopping up procedure orchestrated by the enthroned Christ continues. And there is no doubt as to the outcome. Paul writes in Ephesians 1. God placed all things under his feet, Jesus. So it's a done deal already. He placed all things under his feet. And appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
the not yet of Satan's final defeat is the blueprint of Jesus' reign. At Jesus' trial, he was questioned. If you are the Christ, if you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? See, they figured that out. (laughs) No one sits on the right hand of God except the Son of God. And he replied, you are right in saying that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Luke 22, verse 67 and following. Though they mocked his claim that day, there's another day coming. Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming, coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark 14, verse 62. Paul says it this way, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 and 25. Prophesied in Psalm 110. It's going to rain till the enemies are a place where he can put his feet. You know, in ancient times, um, by the way, that's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. In ancient times, uh, one of the uh, things they used to do on uh, defeated uh, kings, they would have them on the floor and they would put their feet on their necks as a symbol. You get it? You're defeated. I want no more from you. I want to hear no more from you. And sometimes, many times, they were, of course, executed. But the whole idea of feet on the enemy is a sign that they've been subjugated. They have lost. They are no longer a threat. And so you have that symbolism that is in the Old Testament. Now that brings us then to application. And I want to talk... Uh, for a few minutes, about the principle of the already but not yet as as it applies to us. Because this this principle is throughout Scripture and it, it covers a lot of things. Number one, if our confidence of salvation is founded in Christ alone, if it is, we are already saved but have not yet entered our rest. Israel, which is the Old Testament people of God, was a type. What's a type? It's an object lesson. Israel of old was a type, an object lesson of this very principle. Unfortunately, Israel did not trust, did not trust in God by faith. We read in Hebrews 4, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. It's a good principle. 
goes on. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? Think about that. That's thousands and thousands of people. And with whom was he, God, angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? If not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. They didn't believe it. They didn't act upon it. He goes on. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. For if Joshua had given them rest, remember Joshua leads them into the promised land, Moses dies. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have uh, spoken later about another day. This is through David, Psalm 97, verse 7 and 8. So here's his conclusion. There remains then, writes the writer of Hebrews, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Hebrews 4, 6-11. Brethren, salvation is never by accident or fate. It's always on purpose. It's always by God's determination established in eternity past. Paul writes, For He chose us in Him before... <laughs> the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely has given us in the one that he loves. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. This was God's plan. But the plan has to move from blueprint to production. No one is saved simply because of a plan made in the past. Though with God, as we have already seen, nothing thwarts His plans, right? The plan became a reality in the work of Christ and a response to His gospel call. What was His gospel call? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest 
for your souls, where my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. John puts it this way, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, not of a human decision, not of a husband's will, not, 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 but born of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. Now I can say that if that's you this morning, you are forgiven of your sins. You're saved from the wrath to come right now. This is the already. But salvation, if it is anything, is being with Christ, the Savior. Has that happened yet? No. This is the not yet portion of salvation that you and I anticipate, but has not become a reality as yet. Paul puts it this way. We are always confident. Notice how he says this. We're always confident and know, and we know, that as long as we are at home in the body, that's the here and now, we're away from the Lord. He says, we know that. We live by faith, not by sight. I say, we would prefer... To be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8. Notice the contrast. We're home in the body. That's where we are already. We're at home in the body. Contrasted to what? Being away. Out of the body. What do we prefer? Well, he says... We prefer to be away from the body, to die, or be glorified. That brings us to the not yet, home with the Lord. So, there's a way of saying it this way, that salvation is in aspects. From eternity past, when you were just a thought in the mind of God, God determined, to pre, He predestined to adopt you as a son or a daughter of, of God. You weren't even there yet. You were just a thought there. That's okay, though, because whatever God thinks, whatever he plans, that he accomplishes. And then Christ came. The sacrifice was made for the sins of his people. In time, space, history, you were born. You grew up. Somewhere along that growth process, the Spirit of God came upon you and opened your eyes to the truthfulness of your sin, granted you repentance and faith, and you came to know Christ as Savior. That happened in a time-space history, historical event. Well, there's another aspect. <laughs> it's coming. It's the rest. There remains a rest, says the writer of Hebrews, for the people of God. Israel never entered it. You haven't entered it yet. I haven't entered it yet. But it's coming. It's the not yet part of our salvation. And then secondly, sanctification or a holy life 
is a reality now, but it's yet to be perfected when we see Christ. One of the great consternations of my soul is the problem of ongoing sin. Because God has saved me and put within me a love for Christ the Savior, I want to live an obedient life. I want my behavior to model the behavior of Jesus in speech and in actions. But my mind continues to think wrong thoughts and my tongue continues to speak sinful words and my actions are not always godly actions that are done in my body rather than honoring Christ. All all believers experience this. That's why we're um, charged, I might say, with being hypocrites. They say, well, you say this, but you live this way. You know, no one from the world has to tell us that. We know that. And we grieve about that. That's the difference. Our sin doesn't make us happy. We don't relish it. We don't delight in it. We're saddened by all of that. So all believers experience this. Even the Apostle Paul testified about himself. Listen to this. I do not understand what I do, says the Apostle Paul. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, that's what I do. Well, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but, but I cannot carry it out. Wow. Romans 7, verse 15 through 18. And you can sense the tension here, can't you? I mean, short of Jesus, I... There's probably no other person in the New Testament who lived an exemplary life for God than that of the Apostle Paul. And yet, and yet, he was not where he wanted to be or even destined to be by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that no sanctification, no movement of holiness was evident in Paul's life? Not at all. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit and that begins in us the moment we believe. The Spirit is God's gift to us. You can read about it in John 14, 15, and 16, those three chapters in particular. the, The Spirit is God's gift to us and He is the active agent not only to make us spiritually alive in Christ, but spiritually like Christ. Thus the Bible authors speak of sanctification right now. Paul's testimony before King Agrippa as he gave his uh, testimony at at his trial. He speaks about God's commission. And God told him, I am sending you to them, the Gentiles, 
to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Acts 26, verse 17 and 18. Sanctified already, past tense. To the church at Corinth, Paul wrote, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. In the sixth chapter, Paul enumerates a number of horrendous sins and lifestyles, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, none of whom, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. But then Paul adds this truth, verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Sanctified, that's the already that is part of our life in Christ. Because of being justified, forgiven in Christ, by Christ, in whom their faith rests. Now, then that begs this question. What then is the future aspect of sanctification, if there is such a thing? Where, where does the not yet of sanctification come in? Did we not hear Paul bewail the fact that although he had the desire to do what is good, he could not carry it out? Romans 7, verse 18. That is to say, he was so tormented by his own inconsistency and inability that he cried out with the only answer possible. What a wretched man I am, writes Paul. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I have this desire, but I can't carry it out. And he answered his own question. And here's the theology. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, he says, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Romans 7, verse 24. And 25. So while Paul taught that sanctification of life was an already part of the Christian life, he was fully aware that perfect holiness was not yet. But it's coming. Praise God. It's coming. John talks about this in his epistle. John writes, Dear friends, Listen to how he says this. Dear friends, now we are children of God, right? That's the already. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Amen. 
for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. This is the look that enlightens, yes, but more importantly, it is the look that transforms us into the image that we see. Praise the Lord. We read in a reread in a Revelation 21, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, John, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It's done. I'm Alpha. First letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm Omega. Last letter of the alphabet. I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm first and last and everything in the middle. I am the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. I will be his God. He will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and that's the second death. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. What's Satan's future prospect? Let me read it for you. Revelation 20. They, Satan and his forces marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 9. Remember, however, that what we just read, that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the immoral, the occultists, the idolaters, and all liars, they're going to share Satan's fate along with him because they haven't believed in Christ. They haven't accepted Christ's cross work for themselves. Do you know that Jesus came to spare you that? He did. Let me read it for you from 1 Thessalonians for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake, alive in the body, or asleep, dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. First Thessalonians 5. Verse 9 and following. May that ever be the case with everyone here this morning, with our audience out in, on the internet. May you come to experience the grace and mercy of God right now in the already in which you live with promises of the not yet that's to come. That's our God. Neither one of them's in doubt. Chosen before the foundations of the earth. God calls his people out, grants them everything they need to apprehend Christ to the praise and glory of his grace. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.
Thank you for the truth of this principle we've been working today, learning up today. That just because we do not see all of the aspects of your grace to us in place yet doesn't give any doubt whatsoever to the outcome. Because no one can thwart your plan. What you have determined to do, you're going to do. What you plan, you will bring about, as we read from Isaiah. And I pray this morning that if there's one that is outside of Christ, Lord, that you would set your affection upon them and draw them by your grace. Grant them the faith they don't have and the repentance of their sin that they will not yield to you because they love their sin so much. Grant it to them. Break their heart. Bring them under submission. Rule over them. Holy Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, exercise your scepter, your authority, your power. Save whom you will. Extend your kingdom. Expand your family today for your glory and for the good of your people. We thank you that nothing is shaky. Nothing is in doubt when it comes to God. And that is our great hope. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is.